Alco's Mainstream Podcast. On today's episode, we have Seon Kang, a partner at Stepstone, which acquired her former firm, Greenspring Associates. At Stepstone, Seon is a member of the private equity team, focusing on venture capital fund and growth equity investments. Prior to Stepstone, Seon was a partner at Greenspring Associates, a venture capital and growth equity firm that merged with Stepstone in 2021. She spent the seven years prior in investment management with a focus on private capital, working at Jasper Ridge Partners and Common Fund. She also spent a decade on Wall Street. Sayan and I had a fascinating conversation about the current state of venture capital and what it means for LPs and GPs. We discussed how GPs can weather the storm, how LPs can navigate the current venture environment, why secondaries might be an interesting investment opportunity right now, and how newer allocators to private markets can approach investing into venture and growth. Thanks, Sayan, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your wisdom and experiences. If you like this podcast, you can listen or read more about alts by subscribing at alcosmainstream.substack.com. Sayon, welcome to the Alcos Mainstream Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure having you on the podcast. I think there will be a lot of things that we're going to talk about here that are going to be helpful for both funds and companies to understand particularly in navigating this current environment. You see a lot of funds. You also invest directly into companies. What advice would you have for funds and companies trying to navigate this current market right now? There's a lot going on right now. I would say the main message is everyone needs to focus right now on efficiency. For the company side, there is a consensus view. Folks need to focus on doing more with less. Our mutual friends who introduced you and me articulated recently that venture cycles between times when capital wins and when execution wins. And we are now squarely in an environment where it's about execution. You can't hire your way out of a situation. So who do you have in the seats? Have they earned their right to be there? One theme we're hearing quite a bit is that the execs or this East staff that may have been hired in 20 and 2021 may not be the right people for the current environment. So having those conversations with the founders, making the hard decisions about priorities and burn, it's really, I think, what folks need to be doing at this point in time. I saw a stat recently that said the number of Series Bs and Q1 ends in a minute, but so far through Q1, pretty much the entire quarter for 2023 is down 70% in terms of the number of Series Bs versus Q4 of 21. So again, you just need to make every dollar and hire and project count. On the fund side, it's similar, focusing on affecting outcomes for your portfolio companies. The only thing that's going to get you to your next fund is if you make this current and the previous funds work and 
you're going to have to have these hard conversations with founders that a lot of people, frankly, have been reluctant to have over the last few years, being ruthless with reserves and capital, making those hard decisions about who's going to be supported and who isn't, being involved, offering help companies in ways outside of capital. I think LPs are, generally speaking, a bit skeptical right now about the TVPIs, maybe despite the Q4 markdowns we're seeing. Banking situation, obviously not helping the people's psychology. We've been in a risk-off environment. I think that we are either going to deepen or elongate that, maybe both. I think really having those hard conversations, focusing on the winners, et cetera, finding soft landings for the ones that aren't working. Again, it's all about execution. And just to end on a positive note, I would say the silver lining is I do think it's a very, very interesting time for new investments because all of these comments are obviously about existing companies. So just on that point, on existing companies where funds have invested, you invest in both more established managers as well as emerging managers. There were a lot of new investors, whether they were leading rounds or participating in rounds over the past few years. So you've seen a lot of new entrants into the VC ecosystem. That obviously may change going forward, but what advice would you give to those investors, particularly these emerging managers who this may be their first time encountering different part of a cycle and having to deal with a lot of these things that you just mentioned, like helping companies focus on execution, deal with these hard conversations, figure out hiring. What kind of advice are you giving to your managers? Yeah, I think whether they're established or emerging, I think the playbook is still needs to be the same. But for emerging, I think that obviously they're less experienced, generally speaking, by definition. You break that venture job down into four components, the sourcing, picking, winning, value add. And I think the beauty of what we've seen with the emerging manager space is a lot of them have operating experience. And so right now, really the piece that I was describing earlier really fits into that value add category. Again, even if it's a hard conversation, it's still bringing that operating experience to bear. And I would strongly encourage managers, again, particularly the emerging managers to focus on that piece of it, because again, turning that TVPI that everybody has enjoyed very high marks, which was probably how they raised these funds, turning that into DPI is going to be more critical, frankly, for them than for some of these established groups. Do you think that managers are going to have to be more realistic about where they should take things off the table and generate some level of return from prior vintages? Because as you say, if managers can recycle or deploy new funds in current environment, that may be pretty attractive as well. So one thing I should have added to that previous comment about emerging managers was also being, to your point, really aggressive about where these dollars are going that we have left in the fund, whether we're going to support existing companies or maybe that capital is better utilized supporting something new, or if we find a soft landing and we are able to get some money back, depending on where you are in the fund life or investment period, maybe you can recycle it into something that's marked at today's valuations. There is more innovation getting funded today versus maybe more incremental improvement in features that companies were built around in the last several years. Yeah, it's an interesting time, particularly for managers who may be going through their first cycle like this. But to the positive side of things, you mentioned that now is 
an interesting time to invest. Let's take that both from the LP side as well as the manager side. How are LPs approaching this current environment? Are they still allocating to funds? And if so, what are the types of things they're looking at? Yes. I think the days of wondering whether you need venture in your portfolio are over. That went away in the last five or six years after cloud and mobile became ubiquitous and tech was being immersed into every sector, whether it's farming or logistics. But there is an LP analog to the saying of GPs telling companies flat is the new up, meaning I do think for sure LPs will still allocate to venture, but I believe there is consolidation happening. And so they may commit to existing managers, but they'll re-up in a smaller or maybe a flat amount in the best case scenario, which is different than in the last several years. Again, to that TVPI versus DPI question, there are a ton of institutions, families, et cetera, right now in trying to continue to get vintage or diversification and allocate to today's funds. They are seeking liquidity or partial liquidity from the existing portfolios because they do want to keep that venture portfolio current. So on that point, I think it's really important that we all play the game that's on the field. That game may have changed over the last six months to a year. When you say what you just said about investors want exposure to current or upcoming vintage years, but also may have had to increase their investment pacing over the past few years, so may have been over-allocated to venture or privates, but now want to make sure they can still participate in current and new vintages. What exactly does that mean, both from a getting liquidity perspective as well as a going forward perspective? I think for the GPs, really trying to focus on that DPI, whether it is through partial secondary of sales of your companies that are working and or really thinking hard about how to address these companies that maybe don't have product market fit or are struggling and, again, finding a soft landing. Maybe in an extreme case, they shut down and you return the capital. And then again, you can recycle that. I think for LPs, because of this desire to keep that portfolio current and to take advantage of what is a widely agreed upon to be a really exciting new investment period right now, we are seeing a ton of managers reaching out to us. We have a large corner of our business that is focused on secondaries, both direct and portfolios of funds. And there are all kinds of both down to a single fund level, all to very, very large portfolios of funds that institutions are shopping, if you will, whether officially or unofficially, to test the market to see what kind of liquidity they can generate for their portfolio. And on the GP side, the GPs who are approaching us are ones who are sitting with fund that, in one example I'm thinking of, sitting at about a 9x net TVPI, and the DPI is a 1x. It's a 24 14 vintage fund, but there are many examples of those where they're exploring options to try to get some liquidity back to LPs. And then the LPs are seeking it so that they can commit to folks in this fund cycle. So on this podcast, we have a lot of allocators who are listeners, wealth managers, institutional allocators. How should they be approaching the current game that's on the field, particularly when you mentioned something like secondaries? It feels like there's a huge opportunity in the secondary space and investors are going to try to figure out how to solve that. 
by, by buying some of these portfolios, et cetera. If you were in an LP's shoes, how would you be approaching th th this opportunity? I think it's a great opportunity right now, whether you have an existing venture portfolio or not. If you're kind of early in your building your venture portfolio, I think this is a great environment. Secondaries are a very elegant way to get instant vintage year diversification and mitigate that J-curve effect. And the performance of secondaries has been great. And the discounts in venture, generally speaking, is much more inefficient than even buyout secondaries. People understand the buyout secondary space quite well, but venture operates a little bit differently. And so the discounts tend to be bigger and gets you exposure to tech and growth that gives you more diversification than if you were just starting today, a venture portfolio. In terms of folks with existing, existing venture portfolios, I think there too, it serves a purpose of both taking advantage of this environment where, again, we were seeing markdowns all of last year, but in Q4, it's been somewhat, I would say, maybe even pleasantly surprising that the marks were very reasonable. Unlike maybe in years past where many managers simply used a last round pricing, whether that was relevant for today or not, there's been a lot more GP discretion utilized in the marks, particularly for this past Q4, and some combination of operating performance combined with where the comps trading in the public markets, cash burn, et cetera. Again, we've been pleasantly surprised to see the marks more in line with what we believe is reality. I think that because of that, you will start to see even more portfolios of funds transact because now the headline discounts aren't as wide as they were last year, where folks were seeing these aggressive discounts and saying, I can't take that to committee. I can't get that approved by my IC. So that headline number will come down. And I think it's a great opportunity to take advantage. The reason why I clarified was because I think both on the buy side and the sell side, it could serve different purposes. And so I'm just trying to think of if you're one LP, I think on the sell side, it could free up capital as well as clean up your portfolio for managers who maybe you're not current with, et cetera. And then on the buy side from a performance diversification, again, if you're worried about J-curve, et cetera, speed to return of capital, it adds a lot of dimensions if you're looking at it that way as an allocator. We've seen a lot of interest in that. One thing I want to touch on on the secondary side is there's obviously different ways for someone to buy secondaries portfolios from GPs. They might want to buy specific companies and cherry pick some of the winners, and that provides DPI to the GPs. They may want to buy an entire portfolio where there are one or two companies that they expect to drive the returns, but they have to buy the whole portfolio. There's obviously a number of different ways that this gets done. I want to ask, in current environment as multiples have gone down, particularly in SaaS and fintech, where the multiples in public markets have changed dramatically as the public markets have changed. Does this concern you at all when buying secondaries portfolios in terms of thinking, well, the multiples on these private companies where we're buying these portfolios of secondaries or individual companies within GP's portfolio, the multiples have changed and therefore the exit will change as well? Or do you think we'll enter a period where if these new holders of these assets as secondary buyers will benefit from multiple expansion again, if they're able to hold through a cycle? I would say both. <laughs> so 
So yes, we have been concerned about the multiples, but again, we're starting to see a lot of rationalization and moving more towards public market comps in the marks that folks took, obviously with some adjustment because they're generally faster growth than what you're seeing in the public markets, et cetera. But that is starting to almost take care of itself in that people are starting to adjust, you know, what is that they say about the different stages of grief? And I think we're in that acceptance and people are getting the message that anchoring on what the multiples were in the last few years is actually not the right way to think about it because we're probably maybe never going back to multiples like that again. And so we need to look at normalized multiples over cycles and what those looked like. So the underwriting that we do, whether it's what I think what you're talking about, a strip sale of individual companies or a group of companies, but not all of them, or an entire fund, we do a line by line or asset by asset projection analysis, looking at both a low mid high case based on comps, based on, again, normalized multiples, as well as an expected possible exit date. And then we have an underwriting hurdle on a multiple basis that we're trying to achieve for our secondaries purchases. And then what our bid will be, will be the discount at the fund level, or again, if it's a small portfolio or subset of the portfolio strip sale, we'll look at what discount we need and that'll be where we make our offer. For the new holders, I think there's a lot of data that suggests that they will benefit. The fund life, the duration of the fund life for our secondaries fund is much shorter than our other investment vehicles or our other commingled vehicles. I think maybe the shape of the exits that people were expecting is different, the graph is different, but again, we are still underwriting to the same return hurdle. And any deal that we execute on, we are expecting that the new investors of ours are gonna get that return. You mentioned something interesting in there about going down to the asset level and projecting out that business's likely exit outcome. You're different at what was Greenspring and is now Stepstone in that not only do you do secondaries, unlike other secondaries funds who just do secondaries purchases, but you also have fund investments and you have direct investments where you've led rounds, growth rounds, you've co-invested alongside VCs who you've invested in. Do you feel that you get more intelligence into the market and insight into how maybe some of these companies are performing that you might be looking at on the secondary side from being direct investors? And how does the platform of Greenspring Stepstone really change how you are able to understand, underwrite, and affect the outcome of some of these businesses that you invest in? I absolutely think that our primary and direct investing business make us very uniquely positioned to execute on secondaries, 100%, in a few different ways. So we've got a very fulsome data effort. I know everybody says that now, but we have been working on that for many, many years before it was table stakes. And I agree, it is table stakes now. But we have a very deep understanding of down to a portfolio company level because of our primary business and the fund of funds where we sit on a lot of LPACs or obviously at minimum we attend AGMs and do calls with these managers. So we see these companies from the earliest days. And as you know, we're doing even pre-seed fund investing. So we're seeing these companies from almost day one. And then we're tracking tens of thousands of portfolio companies. And there are also not only our direct investments, but 
there are a lot of companies we obviously look at, but then don't end up for whatever reason investing directly. So they're in our indirect portfolio. So we have a unique lens. The other thing I would add is as an LP, we have insight into valuations from multiple lenses. So Managers often hold things at different valuations, A, but also different firms have different philosophies. Some will use last round price, full stop, that's it. No deviation from that practice. Others use OPM. Others use some combination of GP discretion, et cetera. And we know certain GPs are more aggressive than others. Others are more conservative. And then we take that into account when we're pricing a portfolio. And, you know, this looks like a, headline 12% discount, but actually these folks don't use last round price. And oh, by the way, these two or three companies, we know because we looked at it or we heard they have closed an up round. It just hasn't been reflected yet or it hasn't hit the tape yet. So all of that from the LP side, from the direct investing side is, I think, extremely valuable and helps us execute on secondaries in a way that maybe not all of our secondaries friends do. What you're getting at here is really the evolution of the fund of funds business model into a one-stop shop for access to venture in the innovation economy, particularly for all different stripes of investors from institutional investors. You've sat in that seat. You've sat at the high net worth seat, a very large institutional high net worth seat, but the high net worth seat. And then obviously you also offer the access to the wealth management community I want to touch on the evolution of the fund of funds business model. So initially it was mainly about investing in funds. Greenspring, now Stepstone, obviously has an incredible heritage doing that. Now that's morphed into focusing on co-investments or direct investments, either alongside managers or directly, and now secondaries as well. Walk us through the evolution of this business model and why it's been so important to evolve into a broader platform. Um, the co-investments really started, I think, after the great financial crisis in PE. And it seemed like a way for the buyout firms, without reducing their rack rate of their fees, just to sort of synthetically reduce fees. It used to be really frowned upon in venture because your incentives were not as aligned. You're coming at a different security, a different valuation. But I think as the round sizes got bigger, companies started staying private longer, as well as you had a different kind of LP coming into venture. You can't ignore it anymore, in our opinion, as part of a diversified portfolio. It just opened up a lot more room for co-investing. For us, our heritage is a little bit different. So we were making co-investments from day one, and that was very radical thinking in the year 2000. But given the heritage of our firm and our founders' depth of understanding of venture, we executed it in this very specific way. Now, I would say most of the rest of our funds of funds friends, as well as, again, LPs, I think in general, offer co-investments, whether inside of their commingled fund of funds or in different vehicles, or even on a bespoke one at a time basis, because LPs have shown a desire for them. So I think it is critical to have it on the platform. I can only think of one, actually, that doesn't do it, who's a fund of funds, and they have a, a little bit of a different approach. So I think it needs to be offered, but it's still... For most groups, I think a fraction of the AUM that's invested in companies versus into funds. On that point, what's the data you've seen between performance on fund investing versus co-investment investing? Has data proven out to be better 
investing in one or the other bucket? I think it depends on whose data you're looking at. It serves different needs. Obviously, the time to liquidity for the direct is shorter. Just the duration is shorter. And so if you're trying to solve for IRR, you might gravitate towards one substrategy versus the other. Generally, we are looking for the same net multiple return for our investors, but the duration is the difference. There's historically been somewhat of a stigma that oftentimes when co-investments are being offered to LPs, it's because the GP can't fill it themselves. Do you see that to be the case or do you feel that that's not as much the case and you're getting access to the co-invest you'd want to invest in? And obviously you can underwrite a co-invest and decide to say no as well. So you may pick and choose based on how you view the investment merits yourself. But can you dispel that stigma or is that stigma true? I think there's can be an element of truth to it. So for ourselves, we do our own direct tracking of the portfolio companies. I mentioned the data effort. We have an operating team that helps the portfolio companies. So we are proactively seeking out direct and co-investments. Our motto used to be trusted relationships, better outcomes. I think that the foundation of being able to make these investments is we are trying to be proactive about it, not just being on the receiving end of picking up a phone call. And we are trying to have a relationship. That's why we built this operating team to help even where we're not directly invested, these underlying portfolio companies with customer partner introductions or whatnot. But even for, again, our friends who are other LPs who are trying to do co-investments, I would say that that relationship between the LP and the GP and venture is probably a little bit different and closer and more trusted than in perhaps other asset classes. So I would say there's a little bit of a mitigant generally. And then again, we have instituted and implemented operations and process to try to eliminate it completely. (laughs) But I would say there's a little bit of a uniqueness to this asset class. You mentioned that you find ways to help GP's underlying portfolio companies, whether you're an LP or a co-investor, what do you think it means to be a good LP? (laughs) So one of my friends who's a GP at a very well-known firm says, don't be a pain and don't ask dumb questions. And I think it's the analog to when CEOs or founders, they say for board members, do no harm. That's your job. Do no harm. I'm kind of kidding, but I think to be a good LP for us, we jokingly say we're trying to be a not so limited, limited partner, which was why before I joined Greenspring slash Substone, we had built out this operating team to sorry help the underlying portfolio companies of our managers. We put on events, trying to broker relationships between the underlying portfolio companies and corporates. So we're trying to add value. And obviously that comes back in strengthening the relationship and then helping us with allocation etc. But I would say for other LPs, I would start with that easy sort of (laughs) be a nice high integrity person. But I think being transparent. One thing I hear a lot from our GPs, and then obviously we have LPs as well, is there's a lot of frustration about LP speak. I have a lot of friends who are GPs who will say, what do people actually say about me or the fund? And I'll tell them this or that. And they say, how come people can't just tell me that directly? I hear that a lot. And I think there is a frustration around what is really the reason why you're saying no to us. And I do want to say, especially with this explosion of venture funds that have been started in the last five years or so, there are many 
many that are very above average. We just don't have enough spots because we don't want to have manager proliferation in our vehicles. And sometimes GPs will ask, what could I have done better? And honestly, sometimes it's really hard to say. There's an element of getting to know people over time, getting more conviction in their portfolio, especially when they're just starting out. I recently started making the analogy that I think has satisfied people more is I've heard every year Harvard or Stanford or some of these selective schools, they reject thousands of kids who have perfect SATs and captain of the whatever team, et cetera, who don't get in. And there's nothing you can say to them about what they could have done better. And I feel like it's that way as well. So to be a good LP, even if you're saying no, people really value feedback. But again, there's an asterisk that sometimes it's really hard because they've done everything right and you just don't have the capital. It sounds like what fund managers say about LPs is what founders say about fund managers. It doesn't sound terribly different, but I think we have to remember that fund managers are founders too. And that when putting on the LP hat, that's the same. I want to ask a question related to that based on what you said about this environment being a little bit different and doing no harm. I think there's certainly merit to doing no harm either as a fund manager or an LP, fund manager to a founder or an LP to a fund manager. Over the past few years, I think this was true both with VCs and founders of companies, as well as LPs and VCs, in that the balance of power resided with a certain community. So balance of power resided with founders, and they dictated terms over the past few years. That's obviously changed. Now VCs dictate terms, again, more in a slightly different cycle. I think we saw the same happen over the past few years with fund managers owning the balance of power with LPs and dictating terms ways they wanted things done, how they structured their agreements in terms of the fund with LPs. Is that changing as well? And what role do LPs have to play in that as being good stewards of capital and also just calibrating things correctly for VC fund managers so that they don't necessarily get over their skis either? Yes, the balance of power is definitely changing. There's a lot of gladness, I would say, amongst LPs about that. I think in this environment that we just exited, it was very hard to even comment about things that were in previous fund cycles, very, very objectionable, whether it's fees or fund sizes or the way waterfalls for carry or step-ups in carry, et cetera. And that has definitely changed. I think you are not seeing most groups come back with a bigger fund size, In some cases, there are some very well covered in the press examples of very, very reputable firms that have cut their fund sizes or certain fund strategies in half because they don't think the opportunity set is out there given where valuations are right now. And LPs obviously welcome that. Generally speaking, again, there's a lot more comfort now making the comments about the no fault clause or putting a single trigger on this key person, where, again, in previous cycles, I think folks would not have commented. We're also seeing folks who had raised opportunity funds previously now saying, I'm not going to raise the opportunity fund, or the opportunity fund is going to be drastically reduced in size. And that was all feedback that we would try to gently provide in the last few years that was not heeded. 
And I would say just generally, there are a lot of groups that were extremely arrogant, even emerging managers who had no problem raising. We were actually kind of surprised by the attitudes who have really changed in terms of now proactively reaching out for no agenda necessarily, but just to try to stay close. I think the tide has definitely turned. So that's a good lead into what advice would you give managers on how to raise from LPs, particularly emerging managers, as you work with a lot of those types of managers and they may be newer in this market? For the emerging managers, I would go back to really focusing on the returns and the distribution, but that's very specific. Do the hard work, have the hard conversations. Again, let the companies go if they're not working. Every dollar counts. I think we're seeing a lot of cram down rounds and pay to plays and et cetera. And a couple hundred thousand here, a couple hundred thousand there seems easy at the time and seems justifiable to defend your parada. But then it shouldn't be that the money just gets to whoever shows up first. You want to be really ruthless about it, A. And then B, I would say this is generally folks are pretty respectful and nice, et cetera, especially now. But there were a lot of emerging managers who have great resumes, who were able to raise very quickly, who just took LP capital for granted and took LPs for granted. We're getting advice from other GPs, GPs from very established managers giving advice to someone on a fund two or a fund one, and they would take that over the advice of institutional LPs. I don't know that that was the best strategy at the time. And then again, the attitudes that accompanied some of that were surprising. And I would advise against that. You have such a wealth of knowledge and experience on this topic. I wanna make sure we cover a number of questions in a shorter amount of time. So I wanna do a quick fire round on some of these topics around how LP thinks about things. So continuing on from what you just said, is your fund size your strategy? Yes or no? Yes. What's your take on generalist funds? Will they live on or have we entered the era of the specialist manager? So I think if by generalist, you mean anything goes, then I think it's going to be pretty difficult. We're definitely seeing, and we've been seeing this for a while, but it's going to intensify because we are going to see a lot of groups that are not able to raise a subsequent fund coming out of this. Subject matter expertise really matters. And whether that means you're a subject matter expert in a sector dedicated fund or you are a subject matter expert and your fund, some people might refer to it as a generalist fund, but you focus on three sectors. I think, again, the knowledge matters in terms of all of the components of the job that we talked about, the sourcing, the winning, the picking, and the value add. And then I think there's always going to be a world for the established managers. We all know the brands who are multi-strategy, who can be with you throughout the life cycle. Clearly, They own a majority of the real estate in terms of dollars, et cetera, and they will continue to thrive and do very well. But I think the group in the middle that has, to your first question, a fund size that might not fit the strategy because they're very general, again, I think they're going to be challenged. Do you think LP should focus more on sector-specific managers or managers who have a specific expertise but reside in a larger platform and get the benefits from this larger platform that they have, whether it be more partners, knowledge, or post-investment help, platform teams, et cetera? I think they should have a mix of both. I think in a diversified portfolio, you should have exposure to both sides. 
Is there a sector that excites you most right now? Should I say generative AI just to be... Uh... <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I'm just. Is anybody excited about that right yes. now? <laughs> <laughs> um, this might seem like a cop out answer, but legitimately, I feel like there is so much of the world that is so inefficiently run that the application of tech to what folks call the digital transformation, et cetera, to these old industries, there's so much room for improvement. I don't feel like, oh, I really like biotech or I think five, six years ago, everybody was really excited about AI and there were a few AI specific funds that started to pop up. And then people thought, oh, well, actually it's AI applied to robotics and et cetera. I feel like actually the narrative on generative AI has shifted pretty quickly back to that again, the horizontal rather than the vertical. And despite my comments about generalists, we are a generalist investor on the direct side and be very excited about some innovation or improvement in something existing as it pertains to again, like a security or whatnot. And then we've got investments in other areas that are applications for healthcare that are equally exciting. So, Is there a geography of the world that excites you most? I am very, I don't know if this ethnocentric, I think was the term they used to teach us in social studies, but I'm excited about the U.S. I think now that the valuation arb between the U.S. and the rest of the world has is closing, I think that this is a really interesting place to be. Again, I'm excited that innovation is getting funded because it's getting harder to raise capital, just the better founders and the better ideas are going to get funded. I think that there'll be more focus, not dissimilar to there's this question like, oh, is Miami dead? Are people moving back to the Bay Area from Miami? I won't comment on that, but I feel like the attention back to the U.S. is justified, and I'm excited about that. What advice would you have for the new entrants to venture in private markets like the Private Wealth Channel? What advice would you give them as they try to access and evaluate venture? It used to be that venture was jokingly called an access class. And now, again, we've got the institutionalization of the seed stage and this proliferation of managers and it's global. And so we strongly believe that the identification is just as important. The advice I always give is if you can't invest with the top quartile of venture, you're better off not doing it at all. Not in recent years, but there have been 10-year periods where you look back at the data and the median venture manager has lost capital. And we may be heading back into an environment where a couple of years from now, the 10-year look back will go back to that. So I think it's really important to find a way, whether it's if you're on a wealth platform, a lot of them have very well-built-out, knowledgeable research teams. But I'm not sure that I would do it on your own through your neighbors and your friends and your community or whatnot. I don't think venture is not going to make you a ton of money, just writ large. So that's a great lead into the last question I always ask everyone on this podcast, which is what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? Venture. Early stage venture, for sure. <laughs> Why? It's very much about optimism. I've spent time at other firms that did buyout and other asset classes. And there's a lot more that you can analyze and assess in terms of PP&E and revenues, et cetera. But I think what's really exciting about venture and I think fits with my personality is it's very optimistic. 
what can go right, what can be better. The whole point of venture, really, if you remember from macro or whatnot, is about technology. It's to improve productivity, and we improve productivity to improve the quality or standards of living. And so, again, it's very, again, optimistic, which is what I really like about it. Optimism. That is a great way to end this podcast. (laughs) Despite current time that we're in, let's be optimistic, right? Well, this is a great way to end the podcast. Sayon, always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on the All Goes Mainstream podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going mainstream.